Let me just beat around the bush just a little bit, and then I will zero in. You know, Christ, he was not birthed in Athens, which was the intellectual capital of the world at that time. He wasn't birthed in Rome, the political center of the world at that time. He wasn't birthed in Jerusalem, the religious center of the world at that time. But he was birthed in lowly Bethlehem. Therefore, if our Savior gave such a picture of humility, let us follow in his footsteps. Let us be faithful to follow. Then as I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, chapter 12, God gives an endowment of spiritual gifts. There's going to be something that's going to happen. Then in chapter 13, he empowers the spiritual gifts. Then, or I guess I could call it, I call it empowering. Uh, well, that's a good word. Then in chapter 14, our Lord exercises those spiritual gifts. Now, the empowerment of those spiritual gifts in chapter 13 is the chapter that deals with love. And under that heading, I've stated it so many times, I feel as if I'll turn blue if I state it again, but we must have our doctrine right, we must have our separation right, but if we do it all without compassion, we are stealing from, from the Lord even. Even the power of God does not rest as fully upon us as He would have us to. So we need that empowerment, that empowerment that comes through. And he says even in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of faith. If you don't have charity, it's of no value. Faith, hope, and charity, he says. And then he says these three, but the greatest, he says, of these is charity. Then I go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm still kind of circling like a buzzard. You know how they'll do around things and they'll just keep circling. Well, you just give me time and I'll land. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find in verse 2 that the scripture says, How that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. And yet again, we notice that the heart of the people was liberal. The end of what took place here was riches. It had its beginnings in deep poverty, and all that miracle, turning poverty into riches, started with affliction. And we've got our dear brother this morning, Brother Williams, who's with us and has lost a grandchild, and of course our hearts would hurt with him, and our hearts would ache with him, and if you watch him and you see the tears flow, our eyes would cry with him. But the issue is, is that if we had our way, what would we do? Seriously speaking, God saw fit to take a grandchild. We may do something wrong and give him the grandchild. And the reason I say do something wrong is, is because if it were right, God would have left the grandchild, but he saw fit to take it. And that's all within the wisdom of God. And under that heading, I want to note that in this capacity right here, that if the affliction were stayed, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches. So God took poverty, turned it into riches. He did it through affliction. And I wonder if the miracle would have even happened had it not been for the affliction. I want to see God, I want to see God, I want to see God, I want to see God. And he sends affliction so that he can give us the power we need to get through the affliction, so that he can give us the grace we need to get through the affliction. And all of a sudden, I want to see God turns into complaining against God. No, don't do it. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see one of the reasons why God would allow something of this nature to take place. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says it this way. He said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? In the midst of hardship, he's talking about how God is the Father of mercies. And then notice it says as well, and the God of all comfort. Now, watch verse 4. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, and Paul's right there. He could have stopped them, but he allowed them to come and then turned and gave us comfort so that we could see how much of a comforter he really is. We can say all we want. If Christ doesn't go, he can't send the comforter. We can talk about the Holy Spirit as comforter all we want. But until we have a problem that's bigger than us, and we need the God who is bigger than us. All we've got is mouth and we do not have a true knowledge of the things of God in comforting. He says as well, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Notice it, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble, in any trouble. How are we going to comfort them? By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So one of the issues that God does when he sends tribulation and then sends the comfort right behind it is he is teaching us how to comfort others when they go through hardship. And if we are not careful, we will become so self-centered and so selfish that we don't care what it costs us to get out from under the trial, even if it costs us learning how to help somebody else when they're in a trial. Go to James chapter 1, if you would, please, and let's look at that in verse 2. James chapter 1, we're going to verse 2. The Scripture says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. He first off did not say count a portion of it joy, but every bit of it. Even the heart-wrenching news that the instant a phone is picked up and you find out that you've lost a granddaughter. How about when the mom and dad walked in and found the baby laying in the crib dead? Sounds like horrible things to me. Count it all joy. But preacher, you don't understand how much hurt and how much agony I have gone through. I don't understand that. But let's look carefully at something in verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So God's got a lesson He's teaching. He didn't do it just for the sake of it. He's got a lesson He's teaching. In this case, He's teaching patience. Verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work. In other words, quit squirming under the pressure of the trouble. Just let it have its work. Let it have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And I'm not going to make a joke of this. This is a serious matter that I'm talking about, especially at a time like this. I'm not making a joke. But if you look at the first three, the first letter of three words, I want to point it out that ye may be perfect, P, and entire, E, wanting, W, wanting nothing. You got the word pew. How many times does afflictions come somebody's way? And instead of letting God have his perfect will with them, they get bitter toward God and we can't find them in the pews. What a tragedy that is. 
What's God wanting to do? I don't know what he's wanting to do, but he's wanting to do something. And the question is, is when your affliction and your hardship comes, are you going to let him do it? Go to Exodus, if you would, please. And I'm going to chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And I'm in verse 1. I'm dealing with the topic of the afflictions. The scripture says, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And so in this case, the affliction reveals the strength of God. We see God, He's going to with a strong hand. The children of Israel had to suffer affliction to come to the point that God's strength was necessary to get them out of Egypt. They had to spend much time. Look in verse 14. In verse 14, no, chapter 9 and verse 14, excuse me. Chapter 9 and verse 14 says, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. So through Exodus, and the passages I'm showing, we've got the first one, God, he allowed the children of Israel to go through hardship, so his strength could be revealed. Now he's allowing the children of Israel to go through the hardship, so that people could have a knowledge of himself. See, sometimes people read no more of the Bible than what they see in us. And all of a sudden a hardship comes and they, they wonder, they've seen it, it's good enough to live by, but is your salvation and your God good enough to die by may be a question that's on their mind. Is it good enough to suffer for? Look, if you would, please, in chapter 10 and verse 1. That's not the verse I'm wanting. If you would look with me, let me find my spot here. Yeah, chapter 10 and verse 1. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Back up to verse 35. That's where I'm wanting. Chapter 9, verse 35. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And so in this case, the point I'll just state is, is that the afflictions of God that he allows to come their way allows God to show himself to the lost and give the saved people the opportunity to work for him and also speak of him in future generations. And so that's the point I'm after, even though I didn't give us a good verse. But I want us to notice the attitude of verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. And my thought and my concern on verse 20 is, is that sometimes we would distance ourselves so much that God would just turn us over to a hard heart due to affliction. And what a tragedy that would be. Go to Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. You know, you don't find smooth times for the saints of God. Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. It says it this way, it says, And cast him out of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So while they were stoning Stephen, 
he was crying out to a holy God. Isn't that something? We may be crying out, but we may be crying out different words. But God used that occasion to bring one of the greatest Christians into being through the Apostle Saul and then eventually the Apostle Paul. Alrighty, I felt compelled to just make those statements. If you would now go with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> Stand with me one more time. I'll try not to beat around the bush. I took some time there, but I felt compelled to do so. And if you would, I want us to just read just the first seven verses just for a springboard. And then we will look at portions of this chapter after that. The scripture says in verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I'm in Luke chapter 15 and verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and our hearts hurt with our brother. It's easy for me, easier, I'll state that, for me on this side of the podium to say things than it would be if I were in his shoes. But we ask that you would be with him, that you would be with the family. I asked him if his wife ever had the opportunity to meet the, the grandchild as there in Mexico, and he said, no, she never got to see her. Lord, would you be with Mrs. Williams, whose heart grieves for one she never saw. I ask, precious Lord, that you would be with the, the mother and the father, who I'm sure their hearts grieve. I ask, precious Lord, that you would help everybody involved to be able to count every bit of this joy, even the son Aaron in Mexico as he's over there with the dilemma of cancer. That you'd help them to be able to see your strength. That you'd help folks to have a greater knowledge of yourself. That you'd teach them and us how to comfort others by the example that you set to us of how you comforted us. Lord, in Jesus' name, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would not let them falter and bitterness come into the family in any person. Next thing we know, we can't find them in church. But God, may their faith be so strong and so increased that they can say, Lord, they understand, though they don't know why, they understand that you love them and that you care for them and that you're doing what's best for them. 
and that they've got lessons to learn and must learn them. And Father, would you bring to the very tips of everybody involved, everybody that hurts through this situation, the gratitude, the word thank you. By faith I thank you, though I know not why, but I trust you. May you put a joy in their heart under the, under the, the standing that God they can say, though they know not all of what God's doing, they know he's doing something that will glorify his name when he's finally done. And so may joy be in their hearts in that capacity. May the world see the strength and the knowledge of an almighty God through the hurting of the saints of God. May none run, but may all stare by faith into the very eyes of their loving Lord and Master and say, have thine own will, Lord, have thine own will. Have thine own way. Well, Lord, now we've got Luke chapter 15 in front of us. Now let not our minds get so diverted that we miss whatever you would have to say to us quickly through that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. All righty. Let's buckle our seat seat belts and let's get going because I've spent some time in that other area, but I knew I needed to. I felt as if I did. Three parables there are in this passage here, in this chapter. The first parable is it's a lost sheep. Second parable, it's a lost coin. Third parable, it's a lost son. All three parables are knotted up in the understanding of verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, you see a group. The group says that then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. That's group 1. In group 2, you see it found in verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So praise the Lord for the, the reception of sinners that our Lord has, and we thank Him for that. Because had He not been willing to receive sinners, there's not a one of us that would have been received by Him, and what a God we have. So keep in mind that the first two verses unlock all the understanding of this chapter here. Now understand as well what we look at in verse 1 is we see a group drawing near to God. And the question that would have to be asked automatically is, is are we drawing near to God, or what what are we drawing near unto? So we see that they're drawing near to God. As they're drawing near to God, group two, which wants to look religious while not being religious, which wants to look godly while not being godly, they are murmuring against the ones who from their heart want to be godly. That's almost in every church we're in. Almost in every church, these two groups can be found. Somebody who wants to get close to God and somebody who wants to look close to God. And there's a world of difference in those two groups. And how many times have I seen it that the person who wants to get close to God, and as they begin to get close to God, somehow their life becomes a conviction on those who are just trying to look like they're close. And that conviction, they could run to Christ and they could say, God, forgive me of my wicked my wicked facade I put out here and try to look so godly. But no, they don't want to do that in many cases. They would rather grab a hold of the one who's getting close to God and try their best to stronghold them down beneath what they think their level looks like. Now, there's no godliness on their heart, 
but they want to look godly. See, they're wanting to portray an image to the people. And that's the picture we've got going on here. Now, as this group comes near, we note that God said this statement. He said, or it is spoken anyway. He said, then drew near unto him in verse 1, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And I need to make the statement this morning that if you're ever going to come to Christ, you must humble yourself and acknowledge yourself to be the sinner that you truly are. You cannot come to God in pride and try to convince God how wonderful a person you really are. You cannot try to stand back and just tell God and others that you're really not as bad as all of that. That'll never work. Now, you can do that all you want to, but don't try to play games with God and think that you're going to be in group one and come to Christ. And don't, don't be in that group and don't, don't try to convince yourself of that. But in verse two now, this crowd does not have the humility of the group in verse one, but this crowd has pride. And they murmur and they complain and they don't like it. But what a, what a, uh, what a uh, statement they make in, in their minds, a slanderous statement toward the Savior that this man receiveth sinners. See, it's not just enough that sinners come to Christ, but thank the Lord that he receives those that will come to Christ. And what a wonderful thought that is, that he will actually receive them and take them and and eat with them. And what a God we have that would fellowship with us. Oh, one thing to hunger to be with Christ, but another thing to have him to hunger to be with us. That's the baffling thought to me. That's a baffling thought. We come into the first parable. In the first parable, we have a man that has lost a sheep. Somebody asked me one day, they said, uh, well, they said, do you think that this sheep, by the end of everything, it's said and done, do you think this sheep, once the, the shepherd found him, do you think he was saved? And do you think this is a picture of the 99 not being saved and the one now being saved? And I don't know that I can say all that to that extent. I can give you the speculations that I look at. It said in verse 4 that when the man of, uh, what man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness. So the complication that you would look at first off is, is that he had some, but he lost one. But notice that he left them in the wilderness. What did he do with the one? It says in verse 6 that when he cometh home... He has the one draped over his shoulders, and he's coming home with the one. And so the picture that we have here is that God is seeking, and we've heard it this week, seeking those that are lost, and he's looking for them. So thank the Lord for that. I remember as we were street preaching in Oceanside, California, as the one man stepped up, he put his hand to his mouth, and he said, Jesus Christ did not come for a beach party. Jesus Christ did not come to somehow gain money, nor prestige, nor power, but Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those that are lost. And then he preached on the law. But praise the Lord for a Savior. We got lost. I've stated it many a time that my worst condition that I had was not that I was a sinner, but it was I was blind to the fact that I was a sinner. My eyes upon how I viewed me was I was all right. And that was far worse because many people are dropping into hell today blind to the fact that they're on their way to hell. Praise the Lord that though I was blind and though I was in darkness and though I was walking contrary to the very things of God, though I was a sinner and God saw that I was in this condition, He came to me and sought me out and wanted me to come unto Himself. 
So if I can state it, this group in verse 1 drew near to God, but before they ever drew near to Him, He drew near to them. Then I look and see that it says in verse 7, in verse 8, we have another parable. We have a woman that has lost a coin. Now, if you look at this thing carefully, in the first parable, you've got a man that's lost a sheep. If you go to the last parable, beginning in verse 12, you've got a father, a man, that's lost a son, a man. He has a second son, a man. But when God came time to talk about the lost coin, he brought the woman into the picture. I think to myself, that's an amazing thing to me. You know, women know how something one man says, my wife is always losing money at Walmart. But the point is, is that we've got a situation here where this woman is looking for a coin. Now notice how it says it in verse 9, in verse 8. It says, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and, dil- and seek diligently till she find it. Now, let me make this statement that though this be a woman, it's still a picture of Christ. It's showing the seeking out of that which is lost. That's still what's taking place. Now, let's make a comparison back to Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, we've got John on the Isle of Patmos. While on the Isle of Patmos, John hears a voice that is behind him. And when he turns to see the voice, who is it? Well, it's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 12, it says it. He said, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, well, and then in verse 13, and in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. So we've got a candlestick. In the middle of it, we've got Jesus Christ. Look down at the very last verse, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. If we compare that last phrase of of, uh, verse 20, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches, go over to Matthew chapter 5 and let's make a comparison to verse 15. Hold your finger in Revelation because I want us to be able to look back and forth and see it. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 15, we've got a story taking place. We've got a candle that has been lit. Notice it. It says in verse 15, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Now the picture that's taking place here is, is we've got a candle and every one of us are representations of candles. That candle's a representation of mankind. Every candle that does not, every candle has a wick, but not every candle has a flame. And so for the candle in this situation, before it gets, its lit, it gets lit, it's, it's picturing a lost man. But at the point of salvation, it's as if the light of this world, being Jesus Christ, touches his flame to the individual's wick, and now that individual, that candle, now has a light flickering. And when that light now begins to flicker, what are they to do with that light? Are they to put it underneath a bushel? No, they aren't to put it underneath a bushel. They're to put it in the candlestick. Now, to compare that, that very picture right there back with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, God said, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. This is not a universal mentality. This is a local, in, a local I almost said local independent Baptist. This is a local church that's showing itself in verse 20. 
And God's stating that if a person gets saved, they are not to float around and go out on the lake for their Sunday morning service betwixt them alone and God. They're not to sit in their tree stand for their morning service with God. But on the contrary, they are to be a part of a local church and the picture showing that God wants them. And now what does God do with that? I want us to note as well that in the, uh, in the candlestick, it's God using the candlestick with the light being the candle and the light upon it himself to seek through the entire world, through the local church, to find that which is lost. That's what he's showing us here. Now, back in Luke chapter 15, we find this woman, and she has been doing some seeking in Luke 15, and she has looking for that, that um, coin. Now, notice as well, if you would with me, please, that this situation of the first two parables brings out some wording. Notice the wording that he has in, uh, by the way, you find repentance in both of these uh, chapters, or both of these parables. Somebody pointed it out earlier. But if you would notice in verse 5, notice this, and when he hath found it, Luke 15, 5, he layeth it, it, layeth it on his shoulders, and catch this word rejoicing. Now look in verse 6. And come down approximately uh, a little bit to the end. It said, Rejoice with me. Now look in verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven. Go to verse 9. In verse 9, And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. Now look at verse 10. Likewise I say unto you, There is joy. Now, from verse 5 down to verse 10, God's used five, uh, in, in the five instances, He's used two different words, and we would be possibly thinking they're one and the same, but they aren't. He uses the word rejoice three times. He uses the word joy twice. The word rejoicing shows a congratulation, a congratulatory type of a thing. Notice it in verse 5 from the congratulation side. The congratulation side, he said in verse 5, he said, layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And then in verse 6, he goes home and he says, rejoice with me. This is a congratulation. It's as if, look what he has done yet one more time. It is the congratulation of not that the soul has been saved in this case, this rejoicing is pointing at the one who did the saving. It's more than just, oh, praise the Lord, I'll be with, with my brother now that he's saved. That's not this rejoicing. This rejoicing is talking about the great magnitude and miracle of what Christ did to get a lost sinner into heaven. Amen. That's what that rejoicing is talking about. Now, yeah. what a thing God's done to save the likes of a bunch like us. You say, we're not that bad. I've got my necktie on. I've got my suit coat on. I've got my beard trimmed up. I've got my hair cut short. I've got my hair long. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm telling you, it took every bit as much a miracle to save the likes of us as it does some skid row drunk druggie out on the street somewhere. The miracle of God. You know, when we compare God and the magnitude from him to man, and then we compare man to man, we aren't that much different from the lowest one of the realm of mankind. We aren't that much different. That rejoicing is pointing at Christ, the glory. And when Christ goes to the very throne of himself with another lost soul that has now been saved, and they begin to rejoice around the throne, they're not rejoicing that one got saved. They're rejoicing at what Christ did to save them. But now he comes into verse 7, and he says in verse 7, he says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven. And notice this, over one 
sin, uh, in, in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. This joy here that it's talking about is speaking of now, praise the Lord, the family will be reunited. Somebody's gotten saved. Mom's gotten saved. Dad's gotten saved. Brother, sister's gotten saved. Wife's got saved. Husband's got saved. So that's that kind of joy there. Now, as we come into the third parable, in the third parable, as we we now have in verse 12, actually verse 11 begins it, we've got a man, and this man has a son that's going wayward. And in this man, as this son is now beginning to go wayward, we begin by looking at it and noticing in verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. I notice first off that this boy has got a self-willed attitude. He's got a give me attitude as you read it. He said his self, he made reference to himself uh, twice as he said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And so the boy in one sentence makes reference to himself. He's got himself on his mind. It's a very common thing in America today. I want what I want. Why do you want it? Because I want it. It's a very common thing that, that uh, the youth that are now being raised, and quite frankly, the, youth, the generation before our, our youth that we have right now, is very self-centered. They want what they want, and they could care what it'll cost anybody else. So the boy is a very self-willed boy. His pride has risen up. He's got selfishness on his mind. He wants what big number one seeks after. We look in verses 13 and 14, and we see as he begins there, and it says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And all Paul's right there in state now, the boy is self-will, has led him to self-deception. Something has convinced this boy that there's something better in a far country than there is right here at the house under mom and dad. He's deceived himself into thinking, I'd rather be on my own. I'd rather call my own shots. I'd rather have things my way. I don't want to have to think about everybody else. This boy has deceived himself. I tell in our family, if we'd all just think of each other instead of ourselves, I state there's seven in our family. If you want to think about yourself, one's thinking about you. But if you'll function under the philosophy of each thinking of other more than self, then there'll be six thinking of you. And it would be far better to have just, uh, let's just work as a unit and everybody think of the other person because more would be working for you, for you. But this boy was so deceived. He didn't want to be with the family. He didn't want mom around. He didn't want dad around. Things would be better off somewhere else. And so he goes off into a far country. In this far country under deception, he found out that life became hard. He found out that he actually would have to reap what he sowed. He found out that he couldn't actually live in a flippant way and find out that it actually would bring hardship upon him. And he found that sin really does demand a payment. He found out there wasn't peace out from under the authorities that God had given him. Then in verses 15 and 16, we find that he's now under a self-preservation mode. In verses 15 and 16, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. It wasn't, I've got problems, I'm running back to dad. No, this mentality was more along the lines of, I'll never confess to dad, I made a bad mistake. It was along the mentality of, I couldn't go back. Dad'll get look at me in such a way, and all of a sudden, I'll know he's thinking he was right and I was wrong. And you can hear the mindset going on. And instead of going back to dad, the one that loved him, he was trying to preserve his own self, so he went and joined himself to a person of this far country. In verse 17, he now starts his self-examination. I want to back up to verse 16. 
In verse 16 it says, and, and, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. I want us to understand how severe this boy's situation was. That he was so hungry that they deemed their pigs more important than him. They would not feed him what the pigs were eating because it would take it from the pig's mouth. What a pitiful situation this boy's in. So now we come to verse 17. He's finally reached the end of self-preservation and now he's into self-examination in verse 17. And when he came to himself, boy, what a statement that is. He came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to, and to spare and I perish with hunger. And by the way, if you'll note it, it's with an exclamation mark. Something's getting serious now with this boy. Now, notice he says in verse 18, he begins now after he's, he's reckoned himself. He has, he has uh, done his self-examination, uh, and now he recognizes that he's not doing as well as the very hired servants. That's his conclusion. Now he gives his self-assertion. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. So we see now that this self-assertion is ready now to take place. And this boy is giving consideration. He's mapping it out. What am I going to do? I know that I'm in a pitiful position. I now see after now I've examined myself. I'm sitting here in the mire and in the muck and I can't even get the pig's food. I'm in a mess I'm in. And this boy has now come to his conclusion. He's mapping out what he's going to do. Keep in mind. That what he's thinking about, I will arise and go to my father. If you compare that to what was going on in verse 13, he was leaving the father. Now he's coming to the father. That's a picture of repentance. You, somebody says, well, there was repentance spoken of in the first two parables, but not the third. I beg to differ. I believe it's pictured very clearly right here that he was going away from the father in verse 13. Right now in verse 18, he has not repented. He's only considered it. He said, it says, I will arise. He's saying this to himself. He said, I will arise and go to my father. But notice that it's in verse 20 that all that thinking stops and he no longer is thinking about it. He said, I will arise in verse 18, but it's in verse 20 that he rose. He said, I, and he arose. So we see the self-assertion in verse 18. He's, he's mapping out his game plan. And then it's in verse 19, we see his own self-condemnation. And no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He's showing us a picture of how we should come to the Father, by the way. We don't come to the Father acting like, God, you deserve us and we deserve you. You don't come to the Father trying to tell God how great you are and what a great benefit you'd be to his family. We don't come to God trying to tell him how much better heaven would be if only you could be allowed in. Now, that's not what's going on here. This boy has come to the conclusion after the self-examination and now he's beginning that self-assertion trying to figure out what he's going to do. And when he's coming all of that, he finally comes to after he's looked carefully at himself, he's condemning himself. It's almost as if he's saying, what a fool I've been. And I thought I had the world by the tail and find out it's got me. I thought I could be my own man and I find out I'm nothing more than a fool that knows precious little. I had all that money and I've squandered it. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. So the self-determination now sets in. As the boy says, he, where it spoke, speaks of the boy and it says, and he arose. 
and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Imagine that. The dad most likely knew the very direction the boy took off. The dad most likely, as the boy takes off, he most likely stood there and watched his son walk down that old dirt road, the driveway, and eventually out onto the highway. Maybe seeing the little poofs of smoke as his boy's leaving. I can see a tear trickling down dad's cheek as his boy's going away. Maybe he's holding his head in his hand thinking my boy is making a tragic mistake, but he won't listen to me. And I can see dad's heart almost breaking as he's just watching his boy disappear in the horizon. And in my mind, I can see that dad working. Maybe he's working with the cattle. Maybe he's out there working in the garden. And ever so often he wonder about his boy. And glance up on that horizon. Nothing ever show. But oh, the day, Brother Steve... When that dad looks up, sees a figure out there on the horizon, he thinks, surely not, my boy's never come home. It just seems like he's not going to do it. But I wonder, is that my boy? Could it be? You know, he has a walk like him. He slings his arms and has the gestures like him. You know, he has a figure like him. That's my boy. I can see joy beginning to swell up in the heart of the dad as his son comes closer. And it's as if he drops his hoe and he shucks the cattle and he takes off running for his boy. Friend, could you not see a picture of the way God wants you this morning? Oh, that He'd have you to come unto Himself. Oh, how many times has the Father watched the horizon of your life? Oh, how He would plead with you to come unto Himself and look for you. And so the boy comes and the Father runs out. The scripture says the father had compassion on had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. God wouldn't want me. How many have said that? How many have said that? How about that man in Florida? Would God save a murderer? Oh my goodness, would God save a murderer? How about that lady in California? I've been away from God. Would he save me? How about that 82-year-old bar, bar owner in North Dakota? I put the liquor under somebody else's nose, took their money. He said, how much food did their family miss because I took their money? He said, how much wickedness did they do down the road with the liquor that I gave them? He said, I feel as if I'm a participant in every sin those drunks went out and committed. Would God take me? You may have done none of that, but Satan can certainly make what you have done feel every bit as big. And I'm here to tell you today that if God would see you on the horizon coming his direction, he'd have compassion on your soul. Yeah, you're wicked just like I was. Yeah, you're, you're undeserving just like I was. 
But he'd have compassion, and what a picture it is, running. He didn't just lollygab out there and say, well, did you finally come to your senses, boy? It got urgent in the father's heart, and he ran to the boy. He got serious. The boy, when he comes, he now begins to confess in verse 21. And this self-confession that's taking place, he didn't say, Dad, it really wasn't all that bad. I just thought I'd come back and check on you. But what he said was, is I have sinned. He stated what he came to his own conclusion in verse 21. He said, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. So he came to that conclusion. Confessing, but if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, and in this case, the Lord Jesus, but if you're ever going to be saved, you're going to have to confess your own sin, your wickedness. Now let's look at the father's response to the boy. The father's response began in verse 20. As I showed it, he had compassion. He ran, he fell on his neck, he kissed him. Then in verse 22, he draws out the best robe. Picture of us ditching the robe of, of, uh, of self-righteousness and Christ robing us in his righteousness. And then we see that the father had forgiveness, he had pardon, he had sympathy, and he accepted the boy back. So the boy we see here had all this take place. He wanted what he wanted. He left the house. He went out there and locked himself up with a citizen of that country. One preacher said it this way when he finally came to himself. And he says in verse 20, he rose. He said the boy dropped the pail, jumped the rail, and hit the trail. But the boy was on his way home. Now prodigal son number one, was the boy saved? The answer is no. He wasn't saved. He was a real good picture of that verse 1 back in chapter 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So he's a real good picture of that one right there. Now we've got another picture that transpires in verse 28. When the older brother now comes in. And the older brother now has another problem. It's the same problem. Self is the problem. Self is the problem. But this boy now has self-pity. In verses 25 through 28. It says in verse 28, he was angry. He would not go in. You can see his arms folded. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. This boy's got self-pity. Woe is me. My brother runs away and I'm left with all the work. Then we see in verses 29 and 30, he's self-centered. He answered and said to his, to his father, Lo, these many years... Count it with me how many times he speaks about himself. I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments. And yet thou never gavest me a kid. That I might make merry with my friends. wonder which of these two boys is in a worse position. The boy back in verse 12 that was leaving the father, he spoke in one sentence about himself two times. The boy that stayed home spoke in, uh, about himself five times. This boy was in serious position. I'm going to state that I believe both of these boys were lost. I believe both of these boys were in a hardship and I believe both of these boys represented verses 1 and 2. The first prodigal son represented the, boy, the, the crowd that's drawing near to God. And the second prodigal boy represented the crowd 
that murmured against the one that drew near to God. You know, there's always that kind of a crowd. There's always that kind of a crowd. There's always somebody who wants to give a gift to God because they love him. And then there's always somebody over here who wants to look like they love him, but they don't want to give that kind of a sacrifice, so they complain about the person that's doing it. That, 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 uh, that alabaster box could have been sold for a great amount of money and given to the poor. Prodigal son comes home, or, you didn't treat me that way. And they complain and complain. Then I'll state one thing out of this chapter and close my Bible. That when that father spoke to that son in verse 31 and verse 32, after all of the self from the prodigal son one, and after the self from prodigal son two, verse 31 and 32, the father has self-control. He dealt with that son in a proper fashion. This morning, there are two crowds that has been spoken of. Both are lost, but one's coming to Christ. And if you're here this morning without Christ, I wonder which category you're in. Or you may be, you may even be saved. And when one of those categories, somebody's trying to give something to God, and here you are over there complaining about them giving to God. And I wonder this morning with, as we would think about it and consider it, and let's just bow our heads quick. Is it feasible that there's somebody here this morning that would say, you know, I know I'm not saved. And I've been through some of the, the self mentality and I'm given a self-assertion and a self-examination right now. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm not a saved person. And you'd just say with an uplifted hand, nobody embarrassing you, but you'd just say, preacher, that's me. I am not a saved person. Would you just slip your hand up right now and put it right back down? We won't embarrass you or call you out by name. I see a little hand. Thank you, sweetie. Somebody else? Let me ask another question. How many has ever been in the position and never made it right? of complaining about somebody else for what they're doing for the Lord. You've done your work, you've done your work, you've done your work, but you're expecting some kind of a reward from the Father. And you think somebody else is getting more of a reward than you are. How many is in the crowd this morning and is willing and ready to be used of God like that woman with a candle and be used of God to shine the light of the gospel all over the world looking for the lost? And yet you've grumbled and complained about having to go sow one in this week. Maybe you didn't do it verbally. Maybe you only did it internally. Father, we need you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your heart of compassion that though we have done you so dirty, when we started coming your direction, you had compassion on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.